You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. If you have your Bibles as they're coming around, if you'll turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings, and we'll get to the text in a minute. I want to I wanna set this up for us. Set this storyline up. This, this story has to do with a prophet named Elisha, not Elijah, it's Elisha. There's the two prophets. Elisha was Elijah's sort of apprentice. Just, he's a prophet of God. He's been confronting the false religions of Baal worship. Elisha's mission has been to support the king of Israel and the work of God and the city of Israel and the nation of Israel. Elisha's work has been to be a prophet, to lead God's people into a deeper covenant relationship with God. And at this particular point in 2 Kings 6, there's a nation of people called the Aramaeans, and these people are bent on destroying the people of Israel. Elisha has also been somehow working as a spy for God's people in the Aramean camp. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that he was actually in the camp operating as a spy, but since he's a prophet, he can see all things with God gives him. If God gives him the ability, he can see and hear what he wants to see and hear. And so somehow, Elisha finds out what the Arameans are trying to do is they're going to try and rout the Israelites and kill the Israelite nation. So, uh, so Elisha calls the Israelite king and tells him Aramean's plan. And their battle plan. And so as a result, the Aramaeans go to strike, and there is no strike. Because the Israelites know their plan, and they have jetted out. And the Aramaeans are just left there, wondering, what do we do? We can't win, we can't attack. So the Aramean king, as you would imagine, is pretty hacked off at this particular point. So he calls all his advisors, and after all, his advisors are the ones who, who set up this plan. And he begins to take it out on his advisors, because he believes there's a spy in the camp. How else would the Israelites know of his plans? And so he, he waylays on them with his words, and he wails on them, and, and finally an advisor has the courage to stand up and say, but you know there's this prophet named Elisha, he has a reputation, he's the prophet of Israel's God, and I bet you he's the one who foiled our plans, because he can hear what you're planning even in your bedroom, king. The king buys that. So the king decides he's going to set his army out for one primary purpose at this particular point, and he needs to get rid of Elisha. He needs to off Elisha, get rid of the problem that he has. And so at this particular point, he finds out where Elisha lives. Elisha lives in a place called Dothan. And it's nightfall, and the Aramean army sneaks in, and they surround Elisha and his crew. And that gets us to the story. The early morning has come, and now we're in verse 15. So when the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, Elisha is referred to as the man of God. Got up early and went out. He discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, oh, my master, what are we to do? Elisha said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. That's an interesting statement because there's not many with Elisha and his servant. So verse 17, then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and saw the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the end of the story is God blinds the Arameans, sends them away, and Elisha and his servant are saved. Seems like a really short and fairly insignificant story, but there's something very profound that takes place in this story. See, Elisha's servant steps out and he sees very real chariots and very real army and very real horses. 
And it looks pretty hopeless. And it should look hopeless. They're surrounded. Elisha walks out in all his swag, and he takes a look at what's going on, and he says, Servant, those who are with us are greater than those who are around us. And he prays that God would open the servant's eyes. And then all of a sudden, the servant sees another reality. Not only does he see the horses and the chariots of the Aramean army, he now sees the horses and the chariots of fire of the army of God. He sees the angelic army. He sees not only now with his fleshly eyes, he now sees with his sort of spiritual eyes. And so when he sees the real Aramean army and then God opens his eyes and he sees God's army surrounding that army, there had to be a sense of peace. And when we read the rest of the story, we know that it ended very well for Elisha and his sermon or in his servant. See, there's something that Elisha knew that maybe his servant did not know. See, Elisha knew this because Elisha knew Scripture. Elisha was a prophet of God. Elisha knew his heritage of faith. And he knew that above all things, above what he sees physically, he knew this. He knew that the Lord fights for his people. He knew it. He knew that the Lord has always been a fighter for his people. He knew that the Lord has always been a warrior for his people. He knew that the Lord fights for his people. And he also knew that the servant needed his eyes open to see it. So that the servant could see what Elisha already knew in his memory. The Lord fights for his people. See, Elisha knew that the Lord has a love, but it's not just a warm and fuzzy, come and sit in my lap kind of love. It's not just this, this sort of love that we oftentimes think of when we think of relationships. No, no, God has that kind of love, but God has a greater kind of love. God has the kind of love as a parent. You know that kind of love that when it sees, when that love sees its, its loved ones in trouble, you know that love all of a sudden becomes a, a furious, sort of passionate love? that that love becomes almost an animal love, that that love becomes a very parent love, that that love is willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that its beloved is safe or to make sure that its beloved is secure or to make sure that its beloved will be okay. It's that kind of love. It's a furious, it's a jealous, it's a passionate love. This is a love that God has for his people and has always had for his people. It was a kind of love that was rooted in the imagination of his people. And when I say imagination, I don't mean like some two-year-old who has the imagination to create playmates. Church, I'm talking about something rooted deep within the memory of God's people. Something that was rooted deep within who God's people are because it was rooted deep in who God is. And that memory stirred and provoked an imagination. An imagination that began to see what, though it didn't really look like it existed, it began to see what really did exist. It wasn't some playful imagination with some made-up play partners. This was something that the memory of God's people stirred that caused them to see with the eyes of their hearts now. 
And that is what has always sustained God's people, is that they no longer just see the world with their eyes, of the, their eyes and their heads, but they begin to see the world with the eyes of their hearts. And they do that because of who God is, rooted in their memory. Their memory stirs, and their eyes become wide open to what really is going on around them. In a world that we live in today, with what is taking place in this world right now, this is something the world of God's people really need to remember Because the brokenness of this world comes at us and our hearts become stirred with all of these emotions. The brokenness of this world comes at us and our minds begin to be stirred with all of these anxieties and thoughts. The world, the brokenness of this world comes at us and our souls begin to be stirred with this uncertainty. But yet I think what God would want is when the world, the brokenness of this world comes at us that our minds, that our memories would be stirred of who he is, like who he is, who he's proclaimed himself to be. Because that gives birth to change. That gives birth to life. That gives birth to a memory stirred that God is a lover, a furious and passionate lover of his people. And he will fight for his people. See, God's people have always known this. King David, when he was in distress and he had enemies, very physical enemies coming in around him, King David often remembered that God was a fighter for his people. And so he wrote this psalm in his distress, Psalm 35. King David said, Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. Take your shields, large and small, and come to my aid. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and assure me I am your deliverance. Let those who seek to kill me be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let them be like husks in the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. They hid their net for me without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. Let ruin come on him unexpectedly and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into his own ruin. Then I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll delight in his deliverance. My very bones will say, Lord, who is like you, rescuing the poor from one too strong for him, the poor or the needy, from one who robs him? In this psalm, King David remembers that the Lord is one who fights for his people and who rescues his people and who will always triumph for his people. Now, many times the Lord didn't fight the battle that maybe his people wanted him to fight or certainly didn't fight the way that his people wanted him to fight. But what his people understood was that the Lord fought for his people and that the Lord rescues his people and that the Lord triumphs for his people. And again, rescue is where we get in trouble because sometimes we think rescue means complete security and pure safety. But that's not all God is after because God knows how precious this life is, but he also knows how precious eternity is. He also knows how precious our minds and our hearts and our souls are despite what happens on around us. And so God fights and he rescues and he triumphs and he always has. See, all of this stems back to this great historic event in the history and the memory of God's people. See, there's something I don't think we Western people understand. I don't understand it. See, Eastern people live from their memory. What I mean is, everything they are is traced to their heritage in a way unlike our culture. And so their, their life and their sustenance and everything that they've ever been is traced back to the memory of their existence. 
And the Israelite people lived profoundly from their memories. And they didn't live in the past, but they drew strength from the past, unlike maybe we often do. And the most significant act of history in the Israelites' existence was the Red Sea. Was Moses parting the sea, God saving his people from slavery, God hearing their cries and delivering them from oppression. And not just delivering them, but delivering them in an amazing and miraculous way. Remember where they come to the Red Sea and it parts and they cross on dry ground. And so their memory goes back. And I believe Elisha's memory went back and I believe David's memory went back to this one song. And this song is, a, is again, it's, it's, it's not a psalm per se, but it, but it is a psalm because it's poetry and it's Hebrew poetry and it's a song of praise and it's a song that was written to proclaim God's majesty and power. And it was written right after they were delivered from the Egyptian army in the Exodus when the sea had been split and they crossed on dry ground and the waters came and rushed and trampled and washed away the Egyptian army, Moses and his people sang this amazing song. And I won't read the whole song. But it says, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh fights and rescues and triumphs. He is a warrior. He is a warrior. He is a fighter for his people. And he will not lose. He cannot lose. His name depends on his work. God's glory depends on his own action. As a matter of fact, that was part of the argument that Moses used with God throughout the wilderness experience. Well, God, if you just trample us, what will the nation say about you? God is concerned with his glory, and God is concerned with his people, and that will cause him to fight for his people every time. See, the problem is for us is we often forget that the battle isn't always about flesh and blood. You see this all over the world. And I think you see this most tragically in the church. See, in the year 2011, somehow we think that God is no longer a warrior for his people. That God no longer fights for his people and rescues his people and is willing to triumph for his people. And so what happens is we begin to fight. And a lot of times in church history, you'll see, and even in the church today, we, we sort of are so far removed from this truth of God's character that, that's found in the Old Testament, we become such New Testament people that we, that we sometimes almost get rid of the Old Testament altogether, which is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And we forget who God is. And you see it when churches split. You see it when marriages fall apart. You see it when... Christian brother and Christian brother are fighting one another. You see it when God's people forget that the battle isn't about flesh and blood, that there's a greater battle taking place around us. See, we act like the servant of Elijah, and we step out and we see the problem. That problem's very real. But then God tries to remind us that there is a greater thing going on behind that problem. That there's a greater meaning. That there's a greater battle that overarches what we see. 
The Apostle Paul, he, he, he put it like this. As he closes out his letter to the Ephesians, he said this. He said, finally, Ephesians 6, verse 10, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So either what this is saying is true or it's not. But see, I've seen too many times, Christians, I have been a part of this, where I have mistaken that the battle was flesh and blood. To where I start waging war against you, or you start waging war against me, or you start waging war against him or her or, or this, and we start fighting and fighting and fighting, and we forget. We forget that what's really at stake isn't just our relationship. What's really at stake is all the other things that happen as a result. What's really at stake is that there's a bigger battle always going on in this world. There's a bigger battle always going on with every tragedy I think we see. Now, let me make it, let me sidebar just for a minute. When my toaster breaks down, I don't see the devil in my toaster breaking it down. That's just me. All right, when my car breaks down, I don't think Satan took time to come out and, and mess up my spark plugs. That's, that's not how I am. What I am going to suggest, though, is that when these things happen, that all of a sudden this battle begins to rage on. And I do believe that if what this is saying is true, that the tactics of the devil become to then exploit exploit what's ever going on in my life just with the hope that I'll forget where the real battle is. Just so when my car does break down that I'll start thinking that all hope is lost because I got a mortgage to pay and now I've got this car bill to fix and now all of a sudden God isn't as good anymore or he's not blessing me like he used to anymore and I start crawling inside of myself and then I become a hermit to God's people and before I know it, I grow distance between me and God. I still got a relationship with him but I just grow distant and distant and distant and I begin to fight myself and I begin to have these anxieties and then there is no peace that surpasses understanding. The fruit of the Spirit is no longer love and joy and then I just start walling up inside and what we forget, what we forget sometimes is that the battle isn't just flesh and blood. There is a battle for hearts. And there is a battle for minds. And there is a battle for souls. That is where the real battle lies. Now, we may have to deal with those physical things. If your marriage is falling apart, you don't just look back and go, well, you know, the devil's doing it. You engage, and you make that better, but you engage with something in mind. You engage with your memory stirred and your eyes wide open that there's something greater at stake than your marriage ending. There's something greater at stake than you being right and them being wrong. There's something greater at stake than me fighting John. See, because if John and I start fighting, they get Sherry involved. And that gets their friends involved. Then it gets my friends involved. And before you know it, there's Williamsburg Christian Church Part 2 over here somewhere. And that's a tragedy because the battle's not flesh and blood. That's not it. That's not it. There's a battle for hearts. And there's a battle for minds. And what we sometimes forget is who God is. Because no matter how ugly the battle looks, the Lord still fights for his people. He still rescues his people. And he still triumphs for his people. We see that in no greater place than the cross. 
We see that when Jesus walked this earth and showed us what real life looked like. We see that when Jesus paid the price we should have paid. And we see it when Jesus was resurrected. And then God says that same spirit who lived in him to resurrect him is now the same spirit I give my people. And yet somehow we forget where the battle is. Church, there is a battle for hearts and minds and souls. And we need to be a people who live with our memory stirred of who God is, that he is warrior king. And with our eyes wide open, that no matter what it looks like and no matter how it feels, the battle isn't going to be about flesh and blood. It may involve flesh and blood. We know this. But that is not where the battle lies. There is a bigger battle at stake. And so here's sort of my point. Where God's people are growing, where God is working, is always going to be where the enemy attacks. He's just going to. And he's going to exploit the bad things. And you know what? He's going to exploit the good things. And he's going to try and convince us at times that we are responsible for the good things or that the bad things that are going on should define who we are. I spent a lot of time with Garrett since I've been here. We, about every Wednesday, we would study together and just get into spiritual conversation together and he is a strong man, and I've said it before with Dave and him, we, we, we are blessed here. But there's something that I know and that we need to be aware of. There's a battle for his heart, and there's a battle for his soul, there's a battle for his mind. There's a battle for his children's heart, there's a battle for his children's soul, there's a battle for their minds. There's a battle for Robin's heart, soul, and mind. There's a battle for our hearts and our minds our souls. There is a battle there. There are some things we cannot do, but there are some things we can. What we need to do as a church, not just during this situation, but in all situations, is remember where the battle is. When you read the rest of the text, and we're going to look at this next week in detail, you're going to find that we have two offensive weapons at our disposal to engage this battle. The word of God and prayer. Those are the two offensive weapons. As Garrett is going through rehab, and as he is wrestling with getting better and well, we need to fight for him. We need to fight for the family because there's a battle going on. Now, don't run off with this. Don't run off with this and think, well, oh, you know, man, they're just doing bad. Look, their spirits are up. That's not the point. The point is what this text says about life to be true. And that there is a greater battle always going on. And that the enemy is going to want to exploit any possible weakness he can exploit. That's going to be his tactic. And God's people are going to have to step up to the plate and fight for them in prayer. And fight for them through encouragement of the word. And just fight for the hearts and battles and minds of that family and of one another. Of one another. If this had happened to any other family, would we still respond the same way? And the answer, I hope, if we're the church that the book of Acts is trying to call us to be, is yes. 
We have to fight. We can't sit back passively. Life is too precious. And this battle rages on, whether it looks worse or bad or not. So if the Lord is still a warrior for his people, if he's still a fighter, if he's still one who triumphs and rescues for his people, then we need to be a people who believe that and a people who wage war, a people who fight for God's people, a people who engage with God because we're called the army of God, a people who engage that battle, who strap up in the armor and take these offensive weapons and we take our stand. We stand with those who are hurting and not just the Lobster family, but people in this church who are hurting, marriages that are hurting. We cannot sit passively and just let these battles roll along in flesh and blood when we are supposed to be the ones who know the truth, when we're supposed to be the ones who know what's up with this world, who know what's really going on behind the broken marriage, who knows what's really going on behind the broken relationships, who knows what's really going on behind the physical illness and the heart and mind of that individual who hadn't been able to walk for three weeks or hadn't been able to, to go get a cup of water or who can't do what they used to do anymore because now they're 83 years old and they just can't live the way they used to live. There's a battle for their heart and mind. At that point, for that elderly brother or sister in Christ, there is a battle. There's a battle trying to steal their joy and their peace, trying to get them to doubt who God is. That is real. Dave sees it every week. And we've got to be a people who engage. We can't make ourselves young again, but we can fight for one another. Can't we? We can engage with the word and we can engage in prayer, can't we? See, that's why we have these concerts of prayer. That's why we had the prayer gathering for the lobster family when it happened. We didn't do it because it's the right thing to do. We did it because it is the best thing to do. Because that's how we engage. We have the confidential prayer request, not because we want something more to do, it's because that's how we engage. But we need to do it as a family. Now, there are going to be real ways that we help the Lobster family. There are going to be real and tangible ways. But we need to fight for them too. We need to fight for them in prayer. We need to fight not only for his healing, but we need to fight for their protection that they would find God as a refuge in a time of doubt. If Garrett's going to need anything over the next few weeks, he's going to need his will. He's going to need his incredible determination and faith. I can't do what he needs to do for himself, but I can fight for his faith. I can fight for his will. I can fight for his heart, and so can you. We can fight in other ways. One of the ways we can fight is we as a church, we've set up an extra account. It's a separate account from the church account. It's at the same bank. And it's going to be where you or anyone in the world can contribute to their needs. They're going to have tons of needs. Rehabilitation needs, medical needs, tons of needs. And we needed an account set up so people could donate. So if you feel burdened in your heart that you want to help financially with them and they're going to need it, or if you know people who could help financially with them, they're going to need it. We've set up an account. That's one simple way we can fight for them, too, in a very physical way, is we can be a voice. We can raise those funds for them and help. So if you want to do that, or if you know people who want to do that, all they need to do is make the check out to Williamsburg Christian Church and in the memo line if they want to, or they can just put a post-it note that just says that it's for Garrett, or they can call it the crisis account. That's what it's called technically is a crisis account. And we're going to use that and run it through that to support them financially. Another thing we're going to do is Donna, Donna Davis and the Relay for Life team have decided that, that the banquet that we were going to have, the Broadway banquet to raise money for Relay for Life, has been put off. It's going to be put off until, I believe, what, April? Okay, April 29th. 
And what they're going to do is from this point forward, every dollar that's raised through everything but the raffle tickets, but through, so through the purchasing of the tickets, all the money that's raised is going to go through the lobster family. That's another way we can fight for them. Another way we can fight for them is Janet and Hoyt have stepped up and they're going to anchor and be point leadership for some fundraisers that we're going to try and do over the next few months. We're not talking about just three months. We're talking about as long as it takes to help them out there. Another way we can fight for them is by taking food and buying groceries. They're going to need meals for the next weeks. I don't know how long. How long really isn't our concern, I don't think. I think it's just we do it. And so if you want to help, and if you've never done it before, now's the time you need to. Our ladies have stepped up and done this for people who have been hurting physically or not able to do it emotionally. And we've got people in this family who've never delivered a plate of dinner. It is time everybody steps in and steps up as followers of Jesus Christ on mission. It's time for all of us to get to work. We need your help. That is how we fight for one another. And we're going to have prayer gatherings. We're going to have prayer gatherings for the lobster family, but we're going to have prayer gatherings more and more. We're going to have prayer gatherings for our young people, for our little children next uh, on the 27th. We're going to have a concert of prayer. We're going to pray. We're going to pray more, and we're going to pray more together. We're going to read the word together. We're going to fight for one another together. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, coordinate that with Donna Davis as well. Thank you. To coordinate for the meals. Another way we can fight for one another and particularly for the lobster families, let's give them the space and time they need to. The best way we can fight is to serve one another, yes. But I just want to stay with the text. The best way we can fight for hearts and minds is through prayer and through encouragement through the word. Don't let that slip on you, please. Prayer is not just some little ritual we do as Christians in the way we talk to God. It is a way by which we engage the heavenlies. So let's not forget that as a family. Because that's who we are. That's who we need to be. Because we know who God is. We know how mighty he is. We know that above all things, though the bills are coming though the car is broken down, though the kids are disobedient, though the marriage is falling apart, though our brother is suffering physically, though our sister who is 82 years old can't do nothing like she used to do and it really depresses her, though all of that's going on, we know something. We know that God has an intense and passionate love for them and that he is willing to fight for their hearts and their minds and their souls because that's where the battle is. And we as God's people need to fight for their heart, mind, and souls too. And we do that in prayer and we do that through the word because God is mighty to save.